The Working Artist Project is brought to you by Second Line Arts Collective. Learn how you can support at secondlinearts.org. We're creating a platform for those who are curious. One that tells the story from the artist's perspective. Moments in time, captured from the innovators who are reshaping dance, music, theater, and the visual arts. This is The Working Artist Project. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to The Working Artist Project. My name is Gregory Ajid. Uh, tonight we have a special episode. Uh, Mr. Darian Douglas will not be joining us. Uh, fortunately for him, he has uh, some incredible things going on in his life. And uh, he's currently on the road with the fantastic trumpeter and vocalist, Miss Bria Skonberg. And I believe they are traversing the uh, the great continents of Europe. I believe last time last I saw he was in Italy or Prague, or I can't really tell. I just remember Darian with a giant cone of ice cream looking like he was having the time of his life. So wherever Darian you are, we're wishing you the best. And I hope you all are enjoying some good food and making some good music out on the road. Um, yeah, what a, what a crazy night. We've been going through all types of technical difficulties. We started the episode just a few minutes ago, and then uh, my internet stopped working. And then we restarted the episode, and the power went off in my building. So this is our third attempt at this week's episode. And uh, we have a very special guest, one of my great, great friends, uh, we met about 10 years ago when he moved to New Orleans from, I believe, either from Boston or from his home state of New Mexico. And uh, this gentleman is a fantastic guitarist, uh, an unbelievable composer. He's a, a master in the studio. Uh, he's also an entrepreneur. He founded the great record label from New Orleans called Bubble Bath Records and uh, also a band leader where he works under his uh, his own band and they're called Juan Tigre. So without further ado, we're going to, we're going to get right to it now because the way things are looking, anything can happen. And you know, the, all, the only thing left to have happen is Godzilla walk through here and just tear my apartment apart. So without further ado, let's give it up for the fantastic Jod Maestas. Hey, thank you for that introduction, man. My goodness. So many superlatives. Second time is always a charm. <laughs> Third time. Let's go. Love this is the third time. Oh my gosh, man! I, I'm just so I I was like literally just sitting here and saying on our first take, like, oh man, thank God, you know, we're always ready for anything to happen, and I'm just glad that we're actually here working. And just as that happened, all the lights turned off. Just goes to show like, you, man. Shit. You got to be humble around technology, you know. You can always <sighs> throw your curveballs and left just all kinds of left field things. You never know. <laughs> I, I would 100% agree with that. I think you have to, you have to be humble with technology. And also when, when I'm teaching, I feel like I always have to be humble too, because any moment that I start feeling cocky, I'm going to have one of my 18 year old students just uh, put me in my place, you know? <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. Which is actually a funny, a funny story. I remember years ago, I'm not going to mention any names, but we had this very talented um, saxophone player who had, incredible perfect pitch i mean she she was very attuned with that and one of our instructors transcribed like a pretty complicated joshua redmond melody um and they were listening to it in class and they hadn't played it yet and he had passed out the charts and 
she was like, uh, excuse me, um, there is a natural here and I believe the note is flat. And I mean, it's like just a page full of 16th notes and she picked out one note that was written wrong. <laughs> <laughs> And then that's how you get home. Oh, yeah. It's like, listen, with your perfect pitch, if you would, now that you've discovered this one, you can correct all of my charts that I've done because I know you're going to do a great job and you just proved yourself to be extremely useful. <laughs> so great job. Now you have a duty. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to put you to work now. John, how are you doing, man? We're just coming out of this Jazz Fest weekend, and um, today is today is May 9th, and we just had our first Jazz Fest in two years. And unfortunately, I was not in town for the last couple of weeks, so I completely missed it. But you had some cool gigs, and so I was wondering, man, how what was it like being out at the fairgrounds again, and, and how, was, how were the gigs? Dude, well, first of all, I'm sorry that you weren't there. We missed you, bro. We missed you. Um, it was definitely such a good time, just kind of nostalgic and energizing all over again. You know, I remember going to Jazz Fest when I moved to New Orleans. Um, I guess I moved here 10 years ago, so I was there the next year in that spring. And that my first fest, I thought, wow, I just can't believe all of the incredible artists, um, the musicians, the visual artists, the food, just the hang, everybody from everywhere coming in and just celebrating music culture that just blew my mind and i had been doing it for nine years i shouldn't say nine years but really like seven years since then then we had the um, lockdown and pandemic shut down for everything so getting to do it again what i thought was like a annual tradition coming back into it was just so much more revitalizing and it was it was great i mean i'd love getting to kind of like have that camaraderie with all these musicians all these people that you would see every year coming from out of town or even here in New Orleans. And you just don't get to see every so often because we're all working a lot. Um, man, I mean, there's, there's nothing like that. I mean, the performances, the music is amazing, but so much of that whole festival is just like the brotherhood, the sisterhood of just seeing everybody and getting to say, what's up? How you been? What you been doing? And this time around, everybody's been doing a whole bunch of stuff, right? Like everyone's had a couple of years to like marinate in their own little salsa. So it's great to catch up with everybody and see what they've been doing and what they've been getting into, what kind of movies they're watching, what kind of music they're listening to. It's great. You get to marinate in the salsa. I like that one. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's, that's such a unique, uh, this is, yeah, this is a very unique festival. Again, like people have been out. I guess, recreating their lives over the last two years, being at home and, and just kind of dealing with the adversity of the pandemic. And so I'm sure it was like such a joyous occasion to be out there and again, like hear the music, eat the food. But but what you're saying too, like sharing the camaraderie of the brotherhood, sisterhood of being musicians and running gig to gig and, and seeing the out of town cats who only come in town for Jazz Fest. Yeah, man, I'm, I'm definitely, I'm glad you were able to to make that experience and and there's definitely a part in my heart that's like, oh man, I missed it this year. I know. Shit. <laughs> I know. But you were off doing good things too, you know, like. Yeah. You know, I'm not complaining. <laughs> <laughs> so man, I think the important question is though, besides the finger sandwiches that they serve in the uh, backstage area, what, what, what's your favorite food out there? <laughs> I got introduced to a new one this year, which I hadn't really tried. I'd already, I'd always ready and had always been like kind of going for the crawfish bread, but Max Moran told me about the crawfish strudel, which was what? infinitely no. better. 
Really? Oh, it's flaky dough. It's like this like little phyllo concoction with the cheese and the crawfish tails in there. It is incredible. And then after that one, uh, the yakamane. Yakamane is like one of my favorite ones to get. So I do like... Now, this year, I was like, all right, let me get a crawfish strudel. Let me do a yakamane and a mango freeze. And I was set. That was my trifecta. And did that cost you, how much did that cost you, like 60 bucks? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it was about 60, yeah. (laughs) I feel like at this point now, it's like, I mean, the festivals, you know, hands down, the best festival in the world. I mean, having gone to different places, yeah, I always stick in my head like, man, New Orleans Jazz Fest is the best, but damn is expensive. <laughs> if you're not playing, woo. That's the truth. Well, you know, not everybody out front gets blessed with those little finger sandwiches. I wouldn't even say that everyone behind the scenes playing and working the festival gets blessed with the finger sandwiches either because so many people are just like vultures hunting them up and down, just taking them out. Man, people sneak backstage and just <laughs> grab finger sandwiches from other bands and stuff like that. <laughs> Man, do you do you have like a, a favorite jazz fest memory of like maybe a gig you've played or a gig you've seen or is there any any experience that resonates in your mind? One that was really awesome was Jazz Fest. I believe it was 2019. I'm pretty sure it was that one. Is Pedrito Martinez was playing in the Ooh, like, yeah that was, that was the year they did the Cuba trip. That was the one. That's it. That's right. Um, getting to see Pedrito Martinez and his group play was just transformative you know i mean i'm a huge latin music fan i love that whole i mean it's it's just such a wealth of music and that guy and all of his conception of how to take that music forward and hold on to the roots but also reach into the future i mean my goodness it just blew my mind i've been following him online and everything and listening to the records watching his youtube videos But to hear him live and to see him do what he does, that was just so far and away, like, I don't know, like what what you want in a performance. You know, when you say like, oh, I'm going to go to this concert tonight. It's going to change my life, man. Like, that's totally how I felt. And it was like 100 degrees, 2 (laughs) p.m. And it changed my life. Loved it. I think um, Darian and I actually, the first time I saw Pedrito play, it was in New York at this club kind of in the Times Square area. And yeah, they did like a Thursday, Friday, Saturday residency for a couple of years. And yeah, man, it's like exactly what you're saying. Like that's one of those transformative gigs where, I mean, he's like an incredible percussionist, great vocalist. And then like the music is killing and then everyone is dancing. Like that's the best part. It's like such a vibe, man. Like, man, I do totally agree with that. And that was hip too that particular year because I think he played every day at the festival. Yeah, yeah. They've been just like really, really digging into that music in all kinds of different compositions. It wasn't the same set every time, for sure. Man, that's killing. Was that by chance the same year that you performed with uh, Nicholas Payton? It, w- it was, yeah. That was that was also a really great lasting memory for me was getting to do Jazz Fest with Nicholas Payton. And and our friend uh, Cliff Hines, Mono Neon was playing the bass, and um, Robert Sput Seawright was playing drums. Um, that was... That was awesome. It was like a jazz fest for the books, you know? <laughs> that is so sick. Uh, well, we're just going to jump around sure. now, but since we're talking about this particular gig, um, man, how did that gig come about? And like, what was it like getting an opportunity to perform with someone like Nicholas Payton on such a, you know, just a, I guess 
I don't want to say, I guess it's a world stage at that point. You know, it, it is still New Orleans, but we have a, a world audience. Yeah. I mean, it's true. It is like a world audience, despite it being in New Orleans. There's so many people that are coming in from out of town, from everywhere. But that gig really kind of popped up uh, randomly. <laughs> I got a call one day, like, I guess it was like a few weeks prior. And uh, Nicholas had asked me if I wanted to go into the studio with him uh, to make a record. And I said, you sure you got the right number? You know what I mean? Like, you're asking me to do that? Cool. Like, and he was like, yeah, yeah, no, it's you, man. I was like, okay, all right. So, yeah, I'd love to do that. And uh, when we got to the studio, he was like, listen, we're going to work on this record. And also, I got the Jazz Fest date, so we'll do these recording session dates and then right afterwards we'll go and play the festival so i was like you know that was great it was an incredible opportunity i had a great time i learned a lot and it just kind of came from out of the blue you know i had jammed with nicholas when we were both kind of hanging out at the prime example Um, that was a club Mm -hmm. that closed down during the lockdown during pandemic but one of my favorite clubs in the whole world um over by Gentilly, New Orleans, or in that area. And like, yeah, so we had played together, like jammed together. And then just talked, you know, just kind of like, hey, you got a record label. I'm starting a record label. I have a record label. <laughs> uh, how do you do it? You know, and like, we just, we just rap a little bit about some stuff. And, and that's about it. You know, that was like, we got to jam, we got to talk a little bit. And then I got this call months later in the future it was just kind of like sweet yeah let's go i'm totally stoked to do this as um i'm I'm sure that you were well aware of who nick was before meeting him and before getting a chance to play and and so i was wondering like was there something that surprised you about getting the opportunity to play with such an iconic musician that maybe you didn't expect like looking at him as kind of like a fan and then getting the opportunity to work with him professionally. Was there something about his workflow or his musicianship that surprised you? Yeah. I mean, plenty, truly. Um, I'll, I'll start off this and kind of preface that question in my answer with like saying that Nicholas Payton was one of the main reasons that I really decided to move to New Orleans. I didn't know him. I just loved his music. I had been, transcribing his music for a few years at that point when I thought maybe I'll like consider going to New Orleans. And then the opportunity arose when my best friend Claudio Toulouse decided he was going to do a semester exchange from the University of New Mexico over to New Orleans. And he asked me to accompany him on the trip, you know, like, hey, you want to go down south and come and help me move in? I said, yeah, let's go. Like, I've been thinking about it. And I didn't have a reason, a concrete reason to go. But um, yeah, Nicholas was a huge part of that, why I had been thinking about it and just kind of absorbing that music, music of his, of his quintet, of all his kind of like various bands through that point. And that's like 2012. So, you know, I was really digging into Into the Blue and Sonic Trance and, of course, his earlier records with um, his quintet, like... uh, Oh my gosh! I mean, there's so many. I'm blanking on a couple of these names oh, right now, but dude, like, there's like Nick at Night, Peyton's Place. Peyton's place. Oh, I can Thank go. You. I can go on and on about those. Oh, those Nick are my favorite. Night, of course. Like these things. These were like 
so great, you know. And um, yeah, so when I got here, for his work and for him as a as a player, a person, musician, and I made friends with other musicians because we were both in love with like these compositions and like, oh man, this record is great. Like, oh yeah, now see, like, you know who you're getting in touch with if you guys share the same music, right? Like you really start to get along. And uh, anyways, that's my preface. And to say like, when I got to actually work with him, um, what surprised me more than anything was like how much fun he has, you know, it's like he has fun with music. And that was really so enlightening because I guess like his music is so serious in the sense of like a high level, not to say that it's like extremely cerebral or too much intense or something like that, but just like, it's so such a high level that you think maybe this guy is like really, really serious. And when we were in the studio and stuff, it was kind of like, yo, let's just like feel this out and have a good time. Play what you hear, have, have free reign to like, let your emotions fly and let you express yourself. You know, this is about having fun. I'm sure. And I thought, yeah, I'm sure he had a tremendous amount of trust in you too, that you were going to make the right decision to <laughs> have fun. You know, I'm, I'm a fun loving guy. Like I just like to have fun in general. So I was very relieved to like have that energy in the studio and on stage too, you know, just like, Hey man, like just make music. I'm not expecting you to say or do any particular thing. I just like enjoy your company, enjoy what you have to say when you get a chance to say it. So that was really the most enlightening thing. Truly. It was just kind of like, and, and then the next thing I'll say about it was like, um, improvising with space, when to use space. And I thought that that was like really, really cool. Just like his concept of that and laying out, letting things pass, having a second after having said something to let that sentence hit and resonate. And so that was a, a big one for me too. It was really cool. That's that's something that I've been trying to incorporate into my playing for ages. And I just tend to ramble and ramble and ramble with notes. But yeah, spaces, spaces where all the hipness is. I guess uh, Mr. Bat used to always say, um, the information comes in the silence. Oh, I love that. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> that's <really cool>. <laughs> <laughs> So you guys, you guys recorded a CD. And I think last time we talked, you mentioned that it may be coming out soon, right? Uh, I think I think so. He um, Nicholas has been posting about it recently, saying it's going to be coming soon. So, you know, he's at his leisure to put that out whenever he wants to. Um, but yeah, I think it'll be coming out sometime soon. That'd be really fun. Sick. Come, featured on Bubble Bath Records. Oh, right? no, no, no. Featured on Paytone Records. Yeah, Paytone. <laughs> killing. Well, I look forward to that. That's going to be absolutely a killing record. And I think it's really hip that over the last couple of years that Nick has been making a... I mean, he's always been involved in New Orleans community, but I feel like more so now over the last the pandemic and a little bit before, he's been like really using a lot of New Orleans cats in his bands, recording with them and and really trying to, I guess, just, just from my third person perspective, I don't really know what he's doing, but it seems like he's really taken on that, that mentorship role 
in New Orleans and, and really, yeah, really being proactive and in, in helping the younger cats, people of our generation and, and just being available to make sure the music is happening on a high level, you know? So shout out to Nick for, for doing that for us. Definitely. Truly. So John, um, I want to make this about you now. Um, but you know, I've known you for quite a while and I guess we haven't had the opportunity to really dig into John, you know, like who is John? Where does John come from? What, what does John think and feel all the time? And I think like we were talking about earlier, this is a great opportunity to kind of document that. And um, so you're originally from New Mexico and I was wondering if you'd be able to tell me like, what, what are your earliest like musical memories? Like what, like when did you fall in love with music? Do you remember when that happened? Wow. Um, I, I do. I do. My mother uh, taught dance for a number of years. So my mom was a jazz tap kind of dancer and would teach classes. And she was always putting on music at the house, you know, always had everything from like Boston and Toto to like Michael Jackson and Ray Charles to like Frank Sinatra and the Bee Gees. It could be every, it could be all over the place. Right. Um, and that was really important to me as a kid because I'd come downstairs or I would like crawl or what, I don't know, but I would come downstairs as a little kid and like, I would see my mom dancing and like, just like grooving out to music and she'd be like cleaning or prepping something or just like hanging out. And there was always good music in the house. So I remember having that connection, like really, really young. Oh man, like music means fun times. <laughs> and uh, that was kind of my earliest thing. When I was in elementary school, I saw some kids from the jazz band in middle school. They came over to our elementary school, like recruiting people. Hey, when you kids graduate and you go to middle school, you ought to check out band, you know? And I said, all right. And they started playing and I thought, wow, that's pretty incredible. Like, I, I want to do that. And so when I got into sixth grade, I started playing French horn and trumpet. And I uh, just, you know, I, I didn't know any better. I wanted to play French horn because it sounded like French vanilla, which was like the coffee creamer that I was addicted to at that time. You wanted to play French horn because it's... <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, I, I didn't know what was going on. You know what I mean? I was like too busy playing Mega Man and like being going outside and practicing my ninja moves when I was that age. So I didn't know anything about anything. I just went off of the sound of it and was like, okay, cool. Um, yeah, so I did that for a few years. And I can tell you that at the end of middle school, I had a, a friend, my friend Becca, brought in this black, all black electric guitar. Kind of like a show and tell sort of a thing. Like, oh yeah, check this out. I got this thing. And I remember looking at that and watching her like kind of strum it. And I was like, dang, that looks crazy. Wild compared to what I'm dealing with, you know? So I asked her if I could play it and she said like, sure, you know, sure, go ahead. And I mean, I didn't want to give it up. <laughs> I kind of, she kind of had to like, hey man, give me my guitar back. I was like really into it immediately. So that kind of set me on a path with a new instrument. And I just, I was into music. I was always practicing since I had started playing trumpet and French horn, but something about the guitar just called me and turned me to the dark side. And I was like, I'm going to give you all my time. <laughs> I'm never going to forget this French vanilla. It's like. <laughs> <laughs> as silly as it might that's sound, awesome. that's, that's where I was at. 
at like 10 or 11. I don't know. I mean, I feel like that's, hey, when you're 10 or 11, that's that's the only thing that really matters to you. You're like, mom, you'll never believe this. Like, I love French vanilla and they have a French horn. That coffee creamer we always get that I like always just like down, you know, like that stuff. They got an instrument that sounds like that taste, you know, like it's just a match made in heaven, mom. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> that's killing. So, so then at that point, is that kind of like, so you got introduced to guitar at that point. You, I'm assuming you got a guitar shortly thereafter. Yeah, my uh, my grandfather, uh, Papa Benny, he saw that I was interested in guitar. I'd been talking about it with him, and he played guitar. And he's like, "All right, mijito, you know." He was like watching golf on TV one day, and I was like extra bored just watching golf. And he could tell, and he was like, "All right, mijito, like come with me." And we go to uh, this other room, and behind a TV stand, he pulls out this like dusty black trash bag. And inside of it is a steel string acoustic guitar. And he was like, this is for you. You know, like you should start messing around on this and like start going. And I was totally overwhelmed and humbled. You know, I was like, okay, sweet. This is like the coolest thing. And um, that was really great because, you know, that gift really set me on a journey sent me on a path. And my, my grandfather, he actually passed away not long after that. He passed away probably like six or seven months right after he gave me that guitar. But when he gave it to me, I could not stop playing it. Like I knew from borrowing my friend Becca's guitar the day she brought it to school that I was already like, this is crazy. This is cool. I really want to mess around. But when my grandpa gave me that, I mean, it was all bets were off. I was Every day after school, every day before school, I just wanted to mess around and learn stuff and just pick out riffs. I didn't really know what I was doing, but it just, it just connected. Do you feel like, like right off the bat, do you have like a natural inclination to just like hear something and be able to figure it out really quickly? Um, I wouldn't say really quickly, but I feel like there's something, there's something, I have something in there that connects some musical dots. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, that's I don't think it's and then, and then and then so from that point, I, I remember um, you, you also like partook in like a, a wonderful like was it like your high school had like a, a guitar program over there where it was like just just guitars? Oh yeah, like what a crazy coincidence! We had this amazing um, program, and it was really all started with this man named David Ostrovitz. We all called him Mr. Rowe. He's like a mentor, father figure to me. You know what I mean? And like Mr. Rowe started that guitar program at Manzano High School in Albuquerque, New Mexico. At a time when people said like, what are you going to do? Like, you're going to teach guitar? Like, what are you going to teach next? Kazoo? You know, and it was kind of seen like that. And people were really putting it down. And... Wow. Um, if it was going to be guitar, it had to be classical guitar, which is great. You know, classical guitar is wonderful, but there's also so much other music that goes with guitar that isn't classical. And Mr. O was like a huge Led Zeppelin fan and loved folk music and country and blues. You know, he was into all these kind of things. So he broke the mold in the entire state of New Mexico and really in the whole Southwest and started teaching you know, uh, Stairway to Heaven and Ramble On and like 
um, like Sweet Home Chicago. And he would teach all these crazy things, you know, whiskey before breakfast, some Irish fiddle tune that went to the guitar. He would teach all these kind of things. And by the time I got to school, um, freshman year, that was 2004 for me. That was, there was 400 kids in the program every day, seven periods a day. So he didn't even wow. take like an off period. So he taught 400 students yeah. a day? Holy huge, moly. Huge program. Super cool. It was, in a, it was in a building too that was with the jazz band, the concert band, the orchestra, the choir. And there's so many of us you know, guitar players, we were like the scum. We didn't like read music. We read tablature, you know, read tabs, just where the frets are going. And you would always see uh, like a gaggle of guitar players lining the halls, like almost terrorizing the other music students, like with like, don't, 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 don't. And they'd be like, stop playing that. And it was just like, you know, the guitar kids were having a lot of fun. <laughs> so I just I loved it. It was such a good time. And oh man, that's awesome. That's that's so sick. I look when you when you were talking about classical guitar, the first thing that came to mind was Led Zeppelin. I was like, that sounds like classical to me, you know. Totally. <laughs> Absolutely. It's got as opposed to the Bach. <laughs> Jimmy Page was listening to Bach and getting all that good stuff, you know. He's he's in there. Might not be on a classical oh. guitar, but it was that kind of music for sure. So how did how did you end up finding out about Berkeley and and going to Boston to study at like one of the most prestigious music conservatories in the world? <laughs> well, this is kind of a silly story, actually. I don't know if I've ever told you this story, but oh god! <laughs> <laughs> but were you trying to go to Berkeley in California and signed up for the wrong school? <laughs> didn't know how it was spelled and I took a flight to the wrong place and they let, no, it wasn't like that. I had started off my college career in Chicago. Actually, I applied to the uh, conservatory, the Chicago College of Performing Arts, and I got into that school. I did a year there. I loved it, but it was kind of like I was looking for something different. I wasn't sure if that was the right place for me. So I went back to New Mexico to kind of like think it, think about it over the summer. And when I decided to wait it out, I ended up a bunch of gigs back home. It was great for me. I got some like more real world experience. But at one of these gigs, I'm playing at Bumblebee's Tacos, which was like an institution in Santa Fe, New Mexico, because Bumblebee Bob used to put on all these concerts and would have Wayne Shorter, or Ravi Coltrane, or, you know, I could name any big luminous jazz artist. And he had put up a lot of money to bring them to New Mexico. So playing his restaurant was cool because it was kind of like, you knew this guy was a fan. He was a real head about it. And I'm playing his club, his taco restaurant one night. And uh, there's this guy there that he says to me on a break, he was like, oh, hey, man, you know, I um, heard that you're home from a break at school in Chicago. I uh, was sad to hear that you're not going to my school. And I was kind of like, who are you, man? Like, what are you talking about? What's your school? And he was like, well, my name is Lee Burke. I own Berkeley. And I said, oh, 
I had no idea, sir. You like Lee Burke? Is that really how this goes? Your name is Lee Burke and it's Burke Lee? And he's like, yeah, my dad was born a year. But anyways, uh, I said, well, you know, I'd love to go to your school. I just never felt like I would make it, nor could I ever afford it. And he was like, well, listen, I'll tell you what. If you want to go, I'll set you up with an audition. And then whatever happens, happens. I can't promise you anything. But um, I'll make it happen if you want to go. So I just took him up on it. I said, like, yeah, man, let's go. Let's set it up. I'll definitely do an audition. Let's, let's see what can happen. I went and auditioned and got in and got some scholarship money and made it happen. And that's how that turned out to be. You know, it was just kind of like complete serendipity from the jump. You, yeah, it's crazy that you were like offered an audition from Mr. Is it Mr. Lee? Yeah. Mr. 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 Lee. Yeah. Burke. Mr. Burke. Mr. Burke. Burke. Lee Burke. Burke Lee. <laughs> yeah. Mr. Berkeley. <laughs> which comes to Berkeley. That's freaking crazy. So did he live in New Mexico or was he just like passing no, no, through? No, he lives in Santa Fe, him and his wife. And I believe. Wow. Wow, that is so serendipitous, man. Wild. I would never have put that on my bingo card. You know what I'm saying? Like, never, ever. That's crazy. Man, that's, you know, I, I, I think like one of my, whenever I hear the name Berkeley, I have like this personal story with it. And, you know, as a high school student, like I just, going to NOCA, like all the cats at NOCA were going to Berkeley. And, you know, if you were killing, you went to Berkeley. And so I just had this like thing in my head forever that, I want to go to Berkeley. And if I don't go to Berkeley, I'm not killing. And anyways, long story short, I didn't go to Berkeley. Um, so, <laughs> but, but man, without getting too deep into like your experience at Berkeley, you know, something that Darian and I are always arguing about or kind of just, you know, having deep conversations, trying to get to the, the bottom of it is, is just like the value of school and the importance of, you know, getting an, a conservatory education and things like that. And so I know you have an interesting experience at Berkeley and just kind of based on, you know, your experiences there, like wh what is your take on going to a school like that? And like, like, how do you feel about college and specifically maybe like conservatories? Like, do you feel like it is essential for an aspiring musician to go to a place like that? Mm. Well, this is such a personal question, such a loaded question, because the immediate follow-up to this question that I have is like, what do you want to do? So for any student out there listening, watching, or thinking about conservatory or studying music, outside of school, getting a degree in something that is not music, but then continuing your studies in music education or however it might work out for you. Um, the question is ultimately, what do you see yourself doing? Or what do you, what does your like mind's vision kind of project into the future where you would like to be in your wildest dreams where where really is that and it's a hard question to answer you don't have to have the answer but it wherever you go and start developing this vision will ultimately help you to decide how you want to take the next step so with that in mind i think that what i can say is if you are a classical musician 
you're learning classical pedagogy, that is something that has been, that's, that's my pug. That's Ramona saying, hey, man, quit talking. No, mira, who are you talking to, man? <laughs> uh, if, if you are a classical musician, studying classical pedagogy is something that has been so deeply, I guess, like refined in a university setting. So it would be very wise to go to a university for music studies if you're interested in like pursuing a classical musical education. Absolutely. However, if your vision is more of like in a jazz or pop or rock or something more of like popular music genres, including like hip hop or funk or production EDM, like some of these things, there is more of a social nature to the discourse about how to make that music, how to live with that music. It's not necessarily so pedagogical, like not in the same way, I would say. So there's that social aspect of it. And this is, I'm going to try and like kind of consolidate my thoughts here and sort of sum it up, which is essentially like, for me, the most important aspect of music school was number one, my community. Like the community of people around the students. Who am I hanging out with? Who am I making music with or talking about music with? And that's paramount because those people, your peers, are going to end up becoming your colleagues. You're going to work together. You're going to like jam and write together, perform together. And if you feel like you already have a really, really strong community of people who you vibe with, then like maybe stay with that. Maybe leaving to go to school isn't the thing. Or if you go to a school and you find like you're not vibing with anybody, like there's really no one in that school that is like sharing artistic vision in a similar way that you are, like that might be an indication that you look for another scene or maybe look at a different school. I need to let the pug out. She's yelling at me real quick. Let me open the Mary, Mary Evelyn says, show us Ramona. <laughs> Watch, okay. She's watching with us okay. on YouTube. <laughs> but while, John is, while John is grabbing Ramona, I think that was a, a very eloquent answer. Oh, my God, it's Ramona. <laughs> but, yeah, I think that's, like, such an eloquent, hey, Ramona. <laughs> let me let her out. This is, this is a working art. Yeah, go ahead. This is a working artist first where we have a, a, a very a canine featured on the program. But to, um, to just finish up, to wrap up that thought, man, I, I feel like that's such a valid point that's not talked about in school is, is again, the community aspect that you were referencing. It's like, man, like literally where you go to school, those four years in, in a city at an institution, like you are starting to build a rapport with your peers. You're starting to build a rapport with the, t the faculty. You're building a rapport with the community where you're in. And so, yeah, that, that aspect of school is actually tremendously important. And um, yeah, because when, when you get called from, for a gig in 15 years, you're going to get hit up by your, your friends you went to school with that know you and, and can be like, oh yeah, John, yeah, we went to Berkeley together. Yeah, we, went with, we went to school together. Or we played a gig here in New Orleans together. The cat's killing. You should hit him up. But I think that's that's definitely like a, a part of the schooling um, 
the schooling experience that's maybe not always talked about. And I think it's probably the most important part of going to school. It's not necessarily the $60,000 education. It's the connections that you're getting with your peers and faculty while you're there. Right. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to say something controversial. Okay. Oh God. Oh God. Do it. Do it. Do it. (laughs) I'm afraid. What do you you want to get a fantastic music education? Oh, nice. You really only need a couple of books. One of them is this, The Harmonic Experience. It's an amazing book oh, that even John Coltrane recommends. Oh, why haven't you told me about this? W.A. Matthew. <laughs> it's an amazing book. It's an amazing. This is, a, this is a deep book. Look how thick this thing is. Oh, my God. I'm it's buying it right now. This is an amazing. If you want to know about harmony, you want to know about how harmony can relate to your life, your experience. Like, this is a great book. My point being, like, you don't even need the book now. Like, right? You can get all kinds of information on YouTube, on online. I mean, just everybody and everybody before me has said this already. But echoing your sentiment, it's not the sixty thousand dollar education. It's absolutely what you do with the time that you have in that place. Um, to kind of sum up. My experience at Berkeley, one time we had a really cool opportunity to go see the screening of a documentary. It was called Jazz in the Present Tense. And it's an awesome documentary. I'm sure you can get it on Amazon or Netflix or something. It's out there. And we got to watch this movie. Esperanza's in it. Robert Glasper's in it. All kinds of people are in it. Greg Osby was in it. Uh, There's a bunch of people. And anyways, uh, at the end of the screening of the documentary... They opened up for questions. And one of the main themes throughout that whole documentary was like the scene, the scene, my community, right? And I was curious and I asked the panel of people presenting the film, kind of talking about it. I was like, you know, since that's such a major theme throughout the film, why not have just like try to like, foster a great community of creative people and build your scene instead of put yourself in debt to go to music school. What, what about that? You know, and to my surprise at that moment, it like that, like shattered the panel and they were kind of like, I mean, I don't know. I mean, we're all teachers here, but I mean, I think that's a great, that's actually not a bad idea, you know? <laughs> and that's not to say that there's, nothing, that there's nothing you can get from school. Of course, I'm not saying that. There's so much. The teachers, obviously, for me, are number two about why I go to school, right? It's the teachers. There are some incredible musicians who are teaching there. So I don't want to put out any sort of bad vibe that you're not going to learn anything at school, right? That's not what I'm saying. But from this particular experience, I was taken aback by the teacher's reaction to my question. And that was kind of like, yeah, I mean, if you have a good community of creative people that you're loving working with and you guys are growing together, you're building something together, like that is ultimately a more direct path to your personal musical expression than necessarily like leaving that community and going to study music in a conservatory. 
So, I mean, there's pros and cons to each side. I'm not trying to tell you to skip school to any kid who is like <laughs> thinking about going to school. No, it's okay, man. You can be controversial on here. In, in, <laughs> honor, in honor of Darian not being with us tonight, man, please, please feel free to just... Just let them have it, man. Miss you, Darian. I will say, I, I will say, your name. I will say this though, man. There's there's a part of me that, look, I, I'm not trying to be controversial like you. Like I just, you know, I consider myself to be someone who likes to just think about things and throw out ideas for the sake of it. But man, I think a big part of it too is that I, I 100% agree with that. You don't actually need school for any of those experiences. School is just replicate, replicating what happens happens in reality. You know, like John Coltrane didn't go to Juilliard. You know, he did exactly what you're talking about. He bought a book, he read it, he listened to records, he hung with a community of people who were helping him. You know, he was hanging with Monk all the time. And so I think there's a big part of this this institution stuff too, is like keeping the teachers employed too. You know, sure. that's, I mean, that's, that's the conspiracy of schools. Like, and that was something I thought about too, like, again, in, in my, in my may, having to make a decision to stay at a, a conservatory high school or go back on the road. And something that really like was like tugging at my heart was like, man, you know, like if I'm going to teach these kids and teach them and preach to them about being musicians every single day. And then I made the decision in my own personal life that the best option for me was to be a teacher. <laughs> as opposed to being out there as a musician, I felt like a little like, uh, that's kind of fucked up, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> cause, cause like then, then I feel like what you're doing actually is at school as a teacher, you're like, look kid, you need to practice really hard and get real good. So one day you'll get a good teaching job and you'll be all right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one, one day you will run this institution and take $70,000 from everyone. <laughs> Jeez. But and and I mean that with all the love, you know. I'm not trying to like piss anyone off, but I feel like there is a. I, I do. I, I will, look. I'm forever grateful for my experience at, at school, and I totally agree with you. But yeah, it's it's getting a little out of hand with the with the tuition costs. I think that's that's where the problem in my mind starts. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The price is absurd, absurd. I mean, you can kind of look at a music degree as like a degree in the dark arts. It's like this, <laughs> the dark this arts. non-existent <laughs> degree that like really doesn't actually serve you for anything in the real world. If you oh, going man. into a music degree is kind of like, you have to be realistic with yourself. Like talk to musicians, talk to people who you enjoy. They're playing that you like seeing them. You like what they're doing. Ask them about the, that whole experience. What, what's your degree done for you? And they're probably going to be like, well, the degree itself didn't do anything. You know, it's like, it's all about how you play or how you talk to people. And, and actually what I wanted to really touch upon was when you said like school repl replicates kind of like the real life while going to school, you're learning about real life. And, and I absolutely agree. A lot of people need that sort of structured university setting to learn the true necessities of being a working artist, right? Or being a working creative in any sense of the word, which is like, you have to be able to uh, really, you have to be able to be disciplined. You need to manage mm -hmm. time effectively. You need to be able to delegate things that are on your plate, but you really 
need to focus on other things. So like you have to be able to make compromises and delegate things that you really don't have the time to invest your energy into at the moment. You got to pay somebody or ask somebody for help. And you have to be resourceful. You have to be willing to look at all your research. You have to be willing to go to YouTube. You got to be willing to like do a Google search and look for that chart or look for a recording or buy the book. You know what I mean? Like that's what it takes. And if you can really deal with those three or four things and you can be a responsible person when people are asking you, can you show up on time and you say yes, then you've got to mean your word. And if you can do all those things already, you might not need to go to music school to learn them. But you can learn a lot of things while you're there. A ton of things. I learned so many things in music school. If I wasn't in music school, I would have been like, you know, half the musician that I am now. But I also recognize that my particular music school path was a little wild. It was like a little, it was liberal. You know, my, my teachers were all telling me like, go out and gig, kid. Like, you, you shouldn't stay there. You got this. You know? <laughs> I was kind of like, I don't know, man. Like, I, I want to learn. I want to be here. And they're like, let's, you should do it. You should just go out there. I feel like one of the, one of the things that I knew about Berkeley before having gone there was it was like a joke or something at school. And I think Mr. Polera, Mike Polera told this to me. He was like, you know, the best musicians at Berkeley don't graduate from there. Like only, only, the, only, only the ones who aren't that good have degrees. <laughs> No comment. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. There you go. Um, so, man, I'm I'm sorry. This 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 whole podcast has just gotten way out of hand, and like we're going way over time. But if if you have a couple minutes, I would love to um, I would love to play uh, one of the videos that you gave oh, me, sure. and talk about your your solo project Juan Tigre, and you have an, an upcoming uh, record coming out in a couple of days. And um, yeah. So dude, John, you want to play, uh, let's see, we have the two tracks. We have the Dreamcatcher and In These Veins. Is there one that you'd prefer to have played? Let's do the Dreamcatcher. That's the title track of my band, my band's first album. It's the title track. So the Dreamcatcher is the name of the album and it's the first track on the record. All right, y'all. So check this out. This is Juan Tigre, the Dreamcatcher. Oh my God, I'm clicking so many buttons. Here we go. <laughs> Oh, 
right, y'all. That's Juan Tigre and the Dreamcatcher. So we're gonna we're gonna cut it there just so people go and buy the record. Um, and it's also extremely awkward on my end because I know the audio is playing, but I can't hear it in my mind. So <laughs> oh, you're jamming. But I'm like, oh yeah, I haven't listened to this in a couple of years. This is cool. I pulled out my phone real quiet. I'm like, would you make sure the audio is playing? <laughs> Um, man, so tell tell me, how did the name come about for that song, or for how that Juan Tigre? How, how did you come up with that name? That's something that's always, I've always been curious about. Um, so Juan Uh-oh. Tigre, <laughs> <laughs> Juan Tigre was my nickname in high school. Uh, I was man, you're learning a lot about me today, Greg. But you know. When I was in high school, I was one of the founding members of the bowling team. <laughs> no way! Come on, nice. We uh, I used to go bowling with my mom and my my brother and my sister and all them and like all these family friends. We used to go bowling all the time when I was a kid. And um, I remember at some point it was like, uh, "Hey, you know, guys, we should like start something up at school that we could do after school." And I was like, "Yo, what about bowling? Like, you can eat French fries." chicken fingers you're basically chilling the whole time and you're playing you're just like throwing a bowling ball like it's a great time. we're athletes we're athletes y'all right and it was like uh we found a t-shirt that was like that's a fantastic idea bowling club and in bowling club my nickname was juan tigre everybody else just kind of put it on me and so when i was looking for a band I'll just keep it. <laughs> I just took it from back in the high school days. That's yeah. freaking killing. That was it. That was it. It wasn't anything crazy. It's just been there. Something that I admire a lot about your personal projects is that you always, I mean, the music is always incredible, but you always um, have an, an awesome visual aspect to what you do. And I just, I really appreciate just the, the creativity hitting on so many different, um, so many different levels, you know? Thank you. Yeah, man. So, so, so John, real quick, we're going to, we're going to wrap things up here, but can you tell us about the record? How do people get it? And then also how can people connect with you if uh, if they're falling in love with your music and want to to want to follow you online, okay, cool, yeah, okay. I'll tell you quickly if you're interested in seeing what I'm doing, uh, the music, the art, any of this stuff, some of the projects I've been working on. I have a website. It is jmaestas.com. So it's J and then my last name dot com. Uh, there I've got links to my albums, the videos, some merch, some cool things that I've got going on social media and all that stuff and the new album that's coming out this Friday is vastly different than what we just listened to it's actually like music that is very meditative and chill ambient kind of orchestral things that I made during the lockdown and um, hmm. that's the album is called Azul Arriba Blue Be- it's kind of like the blue above us and the blue below us and it's Blue is my favorite color, so I just kind of took that inspiration from both above and below us to kind of inspire some pieces that made me feel a little more balanced during all the tumultuous times that we just went through. And uh, you can get it. It'll be all over Spotify, Apple Music, and YouTube. But um, I actually make real 
$5 if anybody gets it from Bandcamp.com. So I'm Juan Tigre on Bandcamp. I'm asking $5 for it. And, uh, you know, get it anywhere. I hope you enjoy the music. That's really what I'm about. Definitely. Please, y'all, go go pick up John's new record on Bandcamp, you know, and we, we will shout out Bandcamp on the podcast, too, because um, that's one of the few streaming platforms or online platforms that that actually allow musicians to make a fair price for their art, you know, for their music. Everywhere else, it's Spotify just throwing pieces of a penny, if you can believe that. <laughs> After having really investigated a lot of this with our label, Bubble Bath Records, um, yeah, as an artist, Bandcamp is just like a wonderful platform to actually support art directly to the artists. And Spotify and these places are kind of like a necessary evil at this point to get your music out there. And we play the game, but I like Bandcamp a lot more. <laughs> Shout out to Bandcamp. Shout out. Um, John, I appreciate you very much for being flexible this evening and um, also being such a good sport through like literally the most technical difficulty we've had on this podcast ever. <laughs> <laughs> you you lived through it, it an internet an internet disconnection and then a power outage and now we we did it man we we, we did, did it. it listen i am no stranger to technical difficulties they happen to me all the time so i am very forgiving thank you for having me truly it's been a real pleasure Kaylin. well ladies and gentlemen thank you all so much for listening tonight and uh, we'll be back next week for another episode. And uh, be sure to check out John Maestas on all his social media. And uh, John, have a great night. And we'll catch you soon. Thank you, Greg. You too, man. Have a great night. Thank you to everybody listening. And thank you for what you're doing with the Working Artist Project. Man, thank you, man. Peace. <laughs> <laughs>